Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. We've had some of the most advanced health and wellness experts in the world on the show. And we've invited somebody today who is renowned. Dr. Donald Jolly is known for his work with hyperbaric chambers. He is known for being at the Center for New Medicine, Hyperbaric Institute in Irvine, California. And he is an expert in hyperbaric oxygen treatments and answers and protocols for people that are experiencing many conditions of unwellness, from diabetes to brain injuries to sports injuries to even people being treated with chemo and radiation with cancer. They're doing brand new things. And he's also trained under some of the experts in the field in the hyperbaric area. He trained under David Hughes at the Hyperbaric Institute in London and Scotland and was mentored by one of the top hyperbaric experts in the world, Richard Neubauer, who was the founder of the Ocean Hyperbaric Institute in Fort Lauderdale. This is a man that people go to when they want to be well using the latest, most advanced form of treatment. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my divine pleasure to welcome Dr. Donald Jolly to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Greetings and good morning to you, to all of you. I think the first thing that I have learned reading about you is how this higher pressure, this hyperbaric pressure works on the body. But I'd like you to explain it to those of us who've never heard of it before, even though you've been doing this for years. Well, it goes back to the Coca-Cola principle. If you were to visit the uh, office or the bottling company of Coca-Cola, you would see them mixing a lot of sugar and caramel and caffeine and whatever together. But the very last thing they do with that mixture is they expose it to pressure in the presence of a gas. The pressure causes the gas to dissolve into the liquid. And in a hyperbaric chamber, the same thing happens. The pressure causes the gas, which is 100% pure oxygen, to dissolve into the liquid, which happens to be your bodily fluids, your blood and all the other bodily fluids, so that the oxygen is then dissolved at extremely high levels into those fluids, which then seep into the cells and promote incredible healing. Oxygen is the most important element that our body uses. Some say, yeah, sure, food we need or we die. Well, I agree with that. We do, but it takes us weeks to die without it. And others will say, well, water, if we don't have water, we'll die. That's absolutely true. You'll die, but it'll take many days for you to die of dehydration. My question always is, how long will it take you to die without oxygen? The answer is probably three to five minutes, maybe six. It depends on how oxygenated you are when you stop breathing. So that's what happens when uh, oxygen is infused into the body. The cells are so incredibly saturated with oxygen that they promote healing. Oxygen does two things. It sustains life, which we already discussed, and it promotes healing healing that wouldn't otherwise be promoted. That's why the FDA has declared oxygen a drug. When oxygen is used in its 100% form, and especially under hyperbaric conditions because it's dosed magnificently in terms of the volume that's dissolved into the body, it is considered a drug and it is under the control of physicians to have to issue a prescription in order to use hyperbaric oxygen. This process induces angiogenesis, which is the growing of new blood vessels. How does it do that, and how do we know that for sure? <clears throat> well, 
How it does it? It does it using a combination of the pressurization and the change in pressure and the oxygenation. The body knows and feels and perceives, obviously, that when you go under pressure, your blood vessels are constricted a little bit. And when you threaten the body, the immune system says, my body's being threatened, I don't like my blood vessels being constricted, so I'm going to act in a contrary form. So what happens is when you get out of the chamber, your body is saying, man, they try to constrict my blood vessels, I'm going to overcome that. So the body starts to generate tiny new blood vessels and actually uh, help the existing ones to grow and heal and repair whatever needs to be repaired. And the more treatments you have, the more that happens. How can we prove that it happens? The best way for me is to use a brain SPECT scan. A brain SPECT scan is a very sophisticated nuclear scan of the brain, which determines levels of, and places of profusion of blood flow. So we can do it before and we can tell where blood flow may be compromised. We can do some treatments and afterwards do another brain scan and tell where the perfusion has increased because of the growth of new blood vessels. And that's a provable thing, which is very exciting. It takes it away from the realm of opinion. Now, you've worked with people that had brain injuries, strokes, diabetes, autism, and cancer. Can you say something, for example, Gabriel Giffords could probably benefit from this, or is it too late for her to benefit from this process? My personal opinion is that it's uh, very, very rarely too late. Very rarely. Um, I'm part of a group that's working on a research project with soldiers that have been injured in, uh, in blast injuries uh, due to... Uh, any form of explosion. It doesn't mean they got blown up. It doesn't even mean that they were at the absolute site of the explosion. But whenever there's an explosion, there's an expansion of energy from the site of the explosion, and sometimes it moves very quickly and it throws people around hundreds of feet away from the incident. And those people can hit their head and, and have head injury. More often than not, they don't hit their head, but the extreme movement causes the brain, which is encapsulated in the skull to hit the bone and to damage some of the blood vessels that are crisscrossing the brain, which then impedes blood flow to certain neurons, and you have brain injury. You have, you have trackable brain injury. Those kinds of things can be assisted remarkably by hyperbaric oxygen therapy simply because the angiogenesis process will help overcome that, and the sooner the better. Um, I've seen a 14-year stroke victim have enough improvement to leave the convalescent hospital and go home and be taken care of by his wife. The main problem was he, he couldn't pivot. He couldn't do anything for himself. Uh, he had to be lifted from the toilet to the wheelchair to the bed. And he was able, <clears throat> he had a bunch of treatments, I think probably close to 40. And along with the right physical therapy, because the, uh, Hyperbaric is going to deal with the brain, and then if you want to challenge what the newly healed brain can do, you have to challenge it, and that means you have to work. You have to do some therapy. You have to do some exercise. You have to do things 
that are going to utilize the increased capability of, of signaling, the electronic signals that go from the brain to various parts of the body, and that's therapy. So my, my thing is uh, 50% hyperbarics, 50% hard work and dedication. And this man was able to uh, go home, and his wife was able to take care of him and be with him without having to have him in a center. Dr. Jolly, so many of the things that are available to help the body are very expensive. What does hyperbaric treatment cost, and is it something that insurance companies will pick up, and what about people who do not have insurance but want the treatments? How does it work? Well, here here's a couple of things that have to do with cost. Uh, the last time I uh, checked with a major medical center, and I'm talking major, major medical center, well-known worldwide in uh, Southern California, they billed $2,000 per treatment for hyperbaric therapy, $2,000 per treatment. And the uh, patient uh, was responsible either through secondary insurance or, or personally for 20% of the billed amount. So that means the patient was responsible for $400 of treatment and the insurance company paid whatever they paid on a $2,000 bill for one treatment. And many times you need 20, 30, 40 treatments depending upon the problem. Now, we, for example, I'll just pull us because I know what our charges are, are $215 a treatment and $195 a treatment for five or more treatments. So that's a whole lot cheaper than $2,000 a treatment. Right. And the reason that hyperbarics is so expensive in hospitals is because hospitals are very expensive to run and the costs uh, are amortized out through all the departments to make up for losses and things which they have. For example, the emergency rooms lose a lot of money. So I understand that. And also the equipment is phenomenally expensive. This particular hospital that I'm talking about probably has a couple million dollars invested in their hyperbaric department. So somehow they have to make up for that. They have to, uh, you know, most of them borrow the money to build something like that, so they have extremely high monthly payments and all. How long has it been around? Uh, This question is asked me all the time, and I've heard doctors get up at conventions and say, well, this hyperbaric newfangled therapy or this is a new therapy without uh, any real experience. The first hyperbaric chamber was built in 1662. Wow. 1662, I believe the man's name was Henshaw in Europe, and they didn't understand the workings of oxygen, but somehow they got the... uh, the information that pressure was or could be a good thing for illnesses and for the body. Well, what was happening, although they didn't know it, <clears throat> is that there's 21% oxygen in the air, ambient oxygen present in the air. And when you go in a pressurized environment with air only, you are bound to dissolve more of the air into the body because, because there's 21% oxygen present in that air. So people were getting better, and, you know, it was kind of fun. And I, I, They had bellows. They didn't have any electric uh, compressors. They didn't have any of the equipment that we have today. Uh, but they had lots of, uh, of great organs in Europe, you know, musical organs. Yes. The great cathedrals had uh, big ones. They required lots and lots of air pressure. So they developed very efficient bellows. So using the same technique to pressurize the chamber, 
and to have guys pumping these bellows, you can imagine uh, the ancient ships, how you had two, three hundred guys underneath with these big oars. You probably have seen it in movies. Indeed. Well, you can imagine that uh, then uh, you had some men pumping bellows to create pressure for the first hyperbaric chamber. So this went on, used uh, by people, and caught on little by little by little. And then in uh, in 1776, they were able to begin the process of uh, isolating oxygen, which means that you could create higher levels of oxygen than 21%. So at that point, you find uh, lots of, uh, of oxygen dissolving into the blood that wasn't dissolving into the blood before. And that's one of the things that is very important because that was a milestone in hyperbarics. And from then on, hyperbarics would die and come back into uh, the forefront and die and come back into the forefront. And, and then uh, in the 30s and 40s, uh, got a little popular here. There was a hyperbaric hotel built in... Um, in Cleveland, Ohio, it was a 12-story round structure made out of steel, of course. And in the lobby, they had a compartment that you could go in and out of and, and not have to depressurize the entire hotel. And that was uh, popular for a while. And that sounds pretty wild. It was very <laughs> wild. And, and actually, you know, there's something, there's something that's happening now that I really am very happy about, and that is at this point, we're beyond opinion in so many areas of hyperbarics. It's not a matter of, well, we think this and we think that. It's a matter of being able to uh, do spec scans and brain analysis and really determine that we're doing some good on a scientific level. Then other people don't laugh at us. You've been doing this an awful long time, and you've trained with the leaders in the field. You are a leader in the field. What do you say when people say, well, what about ozone therapy? Well, how does this relate to ozone therapy, and how is it different? Ozone is O3. Oxygen is O2. So ozone is a stronger form, if you want to refer to it as a form of oxygen. It can be toxic. It can be uh, harmful. Um, it can cause a great deal of harm. It can certainly exacerbate your lungs. Um, it can also uh, treat the blood and oxygenate the blood. You, know, you can take the blood out of the body, ozonate it, put it back, and you'll have a very positive effect if you do it properly. Um, so it has value. Ozonation has value. For some reason, we don't seem to uh, smile upon it in the United States, and I'm not sure why. I have no idea why. I don't know whether it's political. I don't know whether it's because it does have a capacity to be dangerous, but so does hyperbarics. Hyperbarics, because of the complexity of the equipment and the knowledge and training needed to run the equipment, if you don't know what you're doing, you can have a problem. And so we try to avoid that by, by uh, regimenting the training programs and certifying the people who run the chambers and that kind of thing. But both of them increase oxygen levels both of them are, are antimicrobial, um, healing-oriented therapies. I think hyperbaric oxygen therapy overall is a more complete therapy. I think that it is a therapy that uh, doesn't really have too many side effects at all. Um, if you follow proper protocol, you shouldn't have any side effects, basically, other than perhaps some uh, uh, 
uncomfortable ears, which would be mimicking the same thing that would happen if you flew in an airplane and you came down from 40,000 feet to land at sea level, your ears are going to get plugged up, and that's going to happen to you in a chamber as well. And that's one of the common side effects, but that's not dangerous. It's a little bit inconvenient for a while. So let's talk about how these sessions are spread out for the audience. Yes. Okay. How do you phase them? Well, uh, you gotta, you got to keep the body oxygenated and keep the oxygen levels at uh, a high pitch for a period of time to evoke some healing. So if a patient had, for example, uh, been told that they have to have an amputation because uh, of a certain diabetic problem, developing non-healing wounds, and you know that it's going to probably end up with gangrene and an amputation will be imminent then uh, we would look at the we would look at the wound we'd assess it and we'd say okay probably probably 20 treatments uh is where we need to go so we can analyze it further and we want to do it every day except sunday if we can do it on saturday's fine if they can't we can skip the two days but i'd rather i'd rather do uh saturday and skip sunday uh for the the first phase of the treatment so daily is better a person with a stroke it's the same way. Daily is better. If a person can't do it daily, I think they should do it daily for maybe two weeks and then maybe three times a week with a lot of therapy and hard, hard work. When you're trying to do something physical like that, that's very, very important. For children with autism, with cerebral palsy, you know, cerebral palsy is a very interesting condition. It is a lack of oxygen during the birthing process for the most part. And in, uh, in Russia, uh, there, was a, there, there is still a, a really beautiful hyperbaric hospital. Uh, my friend, Dr. Uffini, uh, ran that for a long time. He recently retired. And in this hyperbaric hospital, they have surgical chambers, big hyperbaric chambers in which they do surgery. They have birthing chambers, birthing chambers specifically for giving birth. They have special chambers for brain issues, brain treatment that go down to seven atmospheres of pressure, which is very, very deep. They have other areas. There's a, at the hospital, there's a department for animals. All day long from early morning until late at night, people bring their animals for treatment in the hyperbaric chamber when they get in fights, when they get in wrecks, when they get hurt, whatever. It's an amazing process. I've never heard of it. Where in Russia is it? It's right in Moscow. I have a very poor quality um, video that we made there years ago uh, that is magnificent. It's absolutely magnificent. Should we uh, have the privilege of uh, being together sometime soon, I'll bring it to you and show it to you. I would love it. Uh, The chambers are magnificent. And uh, they do, uh, in this particular area, have this uh, birthing chamber. And the birthing chamber is used whenever there is a suspicion, whenever there is a suspicion that there might be oxygen deprivation during the birthing process. And when they do that, they eliminate, when they give birth in the chamber, they eliminate the possibility of CP or cerebral palsy occurring because the woman is so highly oxygenated, her blood is so highly oxygenated with transfers to the child, the child can be... uh, born uh, and and go through oxygen deprivation and not be deprived because of the high levels of concentration. And it's also kind of fun to remember that in the early days of open heart surgery, uh, 
they could uh, they could treat someone in a hyperbaric chamber and saturate them with oxygen, do surgery, stop their heart, finish the surgery, put them back together, start the heart electrically, and bring the person back without a heart-lung machine because there wasn't any heart-lung machine. And that's how they did the first uh, open-heart surgeries. How Pretty, fascinating. It's very fascinating. Very fascinating. It's very impractical because you have to have a surgical chamber which costs millions of dollars and you can't move it around. It you know, might weigh 25,000 pounds. So it's a very immobile and that makes it impractical. So the heart-lung machine is much more practical. But the heart-lung machine does have some problems. It's, uh, it's been found to uh, perhaps be responsible for uh, dementia problems after heart surgery. And uh, there's a lot of possible reasons for that, but uh, whatever they are, they're working on them and trying to work them out. Let's talk about the sports medicine applications, and then I want to talk about cancer with you. First of all, explain the context of the sports medicine injuries and how hyperbaric processes Well, uh, let me talk about philosophy first. Number one, sports injuries cost somebody lots of money. When an athlete is injured and they're on the bench rather than in the field playing, it's costing money, and that's not a good thing. They don't want to lose money. With hyperbarics, you can accelerate healing dramatically. How dramatically? My personal experience is 40 to 50% faster. That's dramatic. So if you have somebody who's injured and you want them back in the game in two weeks instead of four, four and a half weeks, you give them hyperbarics every day, sometimes twice a day, in the morning and in the late afternoon. It will reduce edema, of course, reducing swelling, inflammation. It will grow new blood vessels. There's that angiogenesis again. The growth of new blood vessels brings blood and oxygen to the site. And when there's an injury, there's usually a damage to blood vessels. I don't know uh, how many people are truly aware uh, that some of the blood vessels in our body are so tiny that uh, it literally could take five to ten of them to match the size of one human hair, which makes them vulnerable, very, very vulnerable. So when you are traumatized, thousands of blood vessels will break or be compromised. And the faster you can grow them back to supply the blood and the oxygen, the faster is the healing process. Very interesting. So that's money-driven, as is the case with racehorses and hyperbaric chambers. Oh, I've never heard of that. Talk oh my about goodness. that. I have a picture in my lobby of a racehorse going into the hyperbaric chamber. Well, you know, this particular horse probably worth $5 million, okay? And uh, got injured uh, and caught, and, and as a result of the injury, caught a severe infection, something that we would... Uh, we would uh, equate to necrotizing fasciitis or the flesh-eating bacteria. Well, what are they going to do? The horse is going to die. And, uh, you know, usually they don't like a horse to just linger. They, they usually help it along with some euthanasia process. And uh, the horse now can go into a hyperbaric chamber and be healed within 20 to 25 treatments saving $5 million, which is phenomenal. Wow. 
You must have big machines to fit a horse. <laughs> well, these machines the, these machines are made by a company that specializes in making hyperbaric chambers for horses. And I have seen a couple of things throughout the world um, that just really blasted me. Um, one of them is uh, is a uh, chamber that's made to look like a trailer because the horses are used to getting in those trailers. And they're used to riding in the trailers from one racetrack to the next because that's their mode of transportation. So I've seen this chamber, and I really had to laugh because they had uh, they had vibrators where the wheels were, and the vibrators where the wheels were would go on when the horse was being uh, transferred to a different location, and the horse was shaking and it thought it was riding. So it tolerated the hyperbaric treatment very well, without a problem. And then I saw another chamber that was made with a window in the front. And this window was made to uh, be be facing the inside of a big barn with a panoramic screen on it. And on that panoramic screen would be uh, projected the image of a highway of, of scenery and the highway passing by. So when the horse is in there getting the hyperbaric treatment and they put the chamber into this barn, the horse gets the feeling of riding with the shaking and vibration and also uh, has the scenery and it thinks it's on its way somewhere. So it's it's, it's incredible. (laughs) Yeah. I've never heard of such a thing. That's wild. It's wild. But it works. It works, yeah. Wow. Let's talk about the really, really difficult part, and that is cancer. Before we begin, do you have to be, or does the industry or the groups that are using hyperbaric treatments have to be under the radar with respect to talking to cancer patients and having them be patients? No, no, because we don't treat cancer. We don't treat cancer. We leave that to the oncologists. We leave that to the specialists who are, who are doing it. What we do is we use hyperbaric oxygen therapy to facilitate the two main cancer therapies, which are chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Now, I don't know if you know this or if the people listening know this, but hyperbaric oxygen therapy is approved for reimbursement which is very rare because there are not many conditions approved for insurance reimbursement uh, for radiation poisoning because it works. It really is effective at helping to reduce the symptoms of and the problems that are a result of radiation poisoning. So, And it will also help the body accept and make more efficient the results of radiation therapy. So we will then use hyperbaric therapy in conjunction with the schedule for chemotherapy so as to make the chemotherapy and the radiation therapy more effective and less obtrusive in terms of side effects, which is what happens. So this takes it out of the realm of treating cancer in an illegal fashion because all you're doing, and if you have a, if you have a, uh, uh, oncologist who, has enough uh, understanding and willingness and open-mindedness to understand what we're doing, uh, they will they will be able to adjust the dosages to make up for the difference in uh, effectiveness. Because, for example, 
if we use hyperbarics most of the time, there may be a higher level of effectiveness of the radiation or the chemo. So you might want to reduce it a little bit, see? So those are the things you have to look at. But there's nothing illegal about it. Have you ever had people call you up and say, I don't have cancer, I don't have a sports injury, and I don't have any diseases that I know of, but I want to come do this. Would it be good for me? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, that happens all the time. Um, And there are a lot of people who, and you'd be surprised at people who own hyperbaric chambers, but they do it very quietly. Uh, They they don't want people to come and use them because that would be uh, inappropriate. Um, but their doctor can write a prescription for oxygen therapy for someone, and they can get a hyperbaric chamber at home. Um, they're expensive. Michael Jackson did that when he got burned in the Pepsi commercial. I remember that. He uh, got burned, and uh, he was given uh, orders to go to the hospital every day for hyperbaric therapy for a while, and he chose not to make a public spectacle of of himself, and he just simply bought a hyperbaric chamber, had it installed in his house, used it, healed beautifully through that whole mess, and then sold it. People do that a lot. We have a lot of people who, and they can rent them too, and there's a different kind of chamber now available. It's called a soft chamber. It doesn't have the uh, incredible medical possibilities that a steel and glass chamber does, but it's, uh, it does increase your oxygen levels, your dissolved oxygen levels. It's kind of like a balloon you're in a balloon, and uh, you zip it up with a special sealing zipper and turn on a compressor, and it goes up to about three pounds per square inch, which if you were in a treatment in a uh, hyperbaric facility, you could uh, easily go up to 30 pounds per square inch. Wow. So that there's a big difference. But the lesser uh, level does cause oxygen to dissolve in your body, and that's kind of exciting. Is there a way in the day-to-day that you're aware of to oxygenate our blood aside from going into this process? Well, not not at the same level. There's no way because... Right, I get that. But, but to, to uh, increase your oxygen levels, yes. Um, the first thing that I would do if I were dehydrated is begin to uh, introduce water to my body. Dehydration is to water like a word hypoxia is to oxygen. So those of us whose oxygen levels are too low can instantly, and, and this is my, my own opinion and theory, theory is this, that um, God made oxygen the most important thing in our body, and he made it the most available and easy thing to get. We don't have to haul it. We don't have to buy it. We don't have to clean it. We don't have to prepare it. We simply suck it in. And most of us are not doing that. We're suffering from hypoxia because we're lazy breathers. Just like about 60% of our population are estimated to be in a state of dehydration, which is in a state of slowly dying. Right. So breathe. That's how you do it. You breathe. I have an oximeter. An oximeter measures oxygen levels in the body in about 40 seconds. I test a lot of people all day long. When I find somebody that's 89 I show them the 89 on the oximeter, and I say, it should be 98. You know, let's, let's fix it. You want to do something about it? Well, it's always low. And I said, you want to do something about it? Yeah, oh, yeah, I do. So I say, okay, breathe with me. You're going to breathe with me for eight minutes. You're going to do exactly what I do and exactly what I tell you to do. We sit and we breathe. We exhale completely, getting all the noxious p- 
poisonous garbage gases out of our lungs and we inhale and we do that continually comfortably slowly and deeply for eight minutes i then slip the oximeter on again take another reading and very rarely is it not 98 so it shows the person they're in control of oxygen levels at least the basic oxygen levels that we should be experiencing and if they do those breathing techniques during the day, I'd say half a dozen or more times, what it does is it helps increase their oxygen levels on a practical level at the moment, but it also conditions them to breathe better. So that's one way. Another way is to um, use a supplement. Uh, there are some stabilized oxygen supplements that you can buy at the health food store and you put so many drops in water and you drink it, and that will help to elevate your oxygen levels. Um, but that, along with breathing, is wonderful. Um, and if you take a nice long walk, you'll notice you're breathing more because your body requires more oxygen, so there's an automatic reaction. If you go up a couple flights of stairs, uh, you start to breathe a little bit more. That's why exercise is so important, not only from a cardiovascular standpoint and a muscular standpoint and a neurological standpoint, but from the standpoint of uh, increasing oxygen levels. What kind of exercise do you do these days? I walk a lot. I walk a lot, and I love to um, use strength-building machines. I, I go to a place called... Uh, it's it's called slow slow exercise, and they're uh, they're, they're weight balanced machines that you use very slowly, but they build a lot of strength. Interesting. And then, of course, breathing exercises are very important to me. You're pretty advanced. I did a whole show on breathing last year. I have a feeling that the shallow breathing is also part of why we can't get rid of a lot of fat in our bodies. We don't have enough oxygen in the body. Well, that's true. Movement also. And of course, what we put in our mouths is just, I don't, I don't even want to say the word that I think it is because it's gross. But uh, we, we let too much stuff in our mouth and we don't consume enough oxygen and you're right on there. Oxygen is very, very important. Uh, a stabilized, constant supply rather than going up and down. If you depend on uh, taking a long walk to bring oxygen into your body, that oxygen is going to be metabolized from the walk. You have to have something going on to keep those oxygen levels up. And what is that exactly? Are you talking about the drops? I'm talking about breathing more than anything. Yeah. Breathing more than anything. And then there's another problem. You open Pandora's box here. There's another problem uh, that occurs at night with lack of oxygen, and it's called sleep apnea, and that is a killer. That's a killer. Um, for some reason, uh, many people just don't breathe well. There's an obstruction of airflow from the outside into the body, through the lungs, into the blood. And it's usually some kind of breathing uh, disorder. It can, it can be from weight. It can be from the size of the neck and the fat that's collapsing around when you sleep. and uh, Many, many things. But a sleep test, an overnight sleep test, you tell your doctor you need an overnight sleep test in which they measure your oxygen, your breathing, the flow of air through your nose. And uh, if, if you have sleep apnea, it can change your life to get a machine. It's an assist machine that helps you breathe at night, and it is really fantastic. That's great. In one of your talks, you talked about William Campbell's book, Into the Light. I've mentioned him. 
Do you remember yeah. what that book's about? Well, yeah, it's it's kind of uh it's kind of far out in terms of uh of our concept of uh, what medicine is and psychology is and emotional aspects of things are. Um but I'm into that. I'm reading a new one right now that's very similar on fear. These kinds of things we need to look at, but we need not to get crazy about them, you know. Talk about some of the other applications for coming into hyperbaric chambers that are specifically health-related, like people didn't need it for a disease or a major problem that they were aware of, but they went into a certain amount of treatments. And also I wanted to ask you the question, is this cumulative? In other words, how long does each hyperbaric treatment last? Well, that's the reason why I said every day is important, because if you don't go in the chamber every day, you can lose the effect. Um, one day maybe is okay, but uh, if you decide to go once a week, that's okay. It's better than nothing, but it isn't going to be the answer to uh, healing from a stroke or from cerebral edema or uh, even for anti-aging purposes. You have to go more often for a while. And there's a whole lot of things. Do you, do you want to know some of the things that we've treated in the past? Absolutely. And some of the things that are being treated around the world. See, in the United States, we're still a little bit uh, in the dark about uh, using hyperbarics for new things because the, the insurance companies uh, won't go along with it. And in, in the places where they have nationalized medicine, the countries are interested in finding solutions um, so they're willing to be open to this kind of thing. But I've been involved in the treatment of stroke, sudden deafness, compromised skin grafts, crush injury, which is a horrible thing. A lot of people during uh, big earthquakes uh, in Europe and Eastern Europe are treated in hyperbarics for crush injury. Post-traumatic cerebral edema, which is swelling around the brain, which is horrible. A lot of people go in just for anti-aging, and after a while they notice differences in their skin and in their whole metabolic system. Um, decompression sickness is one of the first things hyperbarics ever treated, and that has to do with divers uh, getting the bends, which is an accumulation of uh, dissolved nitrogen in the body, which is, is deadly. It's horrible. Uh, wounds from bullets can be treated very well. Uh, delayed radiation injury, carbon monoxide poisoning, very, very easily uh, helped. Smoke inhalation injury. It's it's something very interesting to know that any kind of wounds that are not healing, any non-healing wound, should be treated with hyperbaric therapy, any non-healing wound. I think that's very important. Burns should be treated. Gangrene should be treated. Um, necrotizing soft tissue infection like uh, the flesh-eating bacteria. I have not personally seen anyone that we've treated with... Uh, with flesh-eating bacteria not heal. And, you know, trench mouth and trench foot can be, can be uh, helped by hyperbarics. Uh, frostbite, cold injury, can be helped by hyperbarics sooner the better. Uh, tinnitus uh, usually can help. Uh, there are a lot of problems with uh, the inner ear, and uh, tinnitus is one of them. Meniere's disease is pretty much closely related to that. I've seen them treated, and these are all covered in the international textbook of hyperbaric medicine. Migraine headache and headaches in general can be treated. You have to kind of find a protocol that works for the patient because everybody's in kind of a different state. 
It's now being used to help kids with cerebral palsy and autism. It's not easy. That's, that's not an easy challenge, uh, but it can be very helpful, very, very helpful. How about people that turn their ankles walking or running? Yeah, any kind of sprain, anything like that, anything like that. Post and pre-surgery, any kind of surgery, you should have hyperbaric couple of treatments before and five or six after. It'll accelerate your healing process dramatically. Broken bones, um, I had a, a young man that worked for us who broke his arm, and he was told that uh, he would be probably seven to eight weeks away from a complete healing and uh, he went in the chamber every single day, and his bone was completely healed. His arm was back in shape in three and a half weeks. It sounds like these chambers need to be all over the country. Well, when I first started working with Dr. Neubauer a long time ago, there were 79 hyperbaric chambers in the United States. There are now about 1,500 Wow. And Dr. Neubauer was uh, very committed, as was I, to very slowly teach physicians about hyperbarics and encourage them to reach out and use it. And we, uh, we did uh, programs with these doctors, and we'd have dinner with them. And I remember uh, we did this in London. We did this in Scotland. We did it in Romania. Uh, we even did some work in Africa. Um, but that didn't help the United States. But over here in the United States, Dr. Bruce Halstead helped us. He was a, a pioneer in hyperbarics as well. And now we have 1,500 of them, and we have a couple of uh, organizations that are promoting hyperbarics that are away from the standard medical. Uh, the, the standard medical version of a hyperbaric society favors hospital chambers and hospital treatment. And I don't really understand why. Um, Maybe they think it's more official. Well, you know, they do, but there's also the financial aspect of it, which I sometimes mention, sometimes not. Um, To preserve justification for $2,000 billing, and some hospitals are cheap, they're only uh, maybe $1,200, $1,300 billing, compared to a billing of $200 or $195, there might be some interest in preserving that because too much competition is going to make, every, especially even the insurance companies will say, well, why are we paying the hospital so much when uh, when it's available in other places for 80% less or whatever, you know? I don't know. I have no clue. Of the countries in Europe, I'm just curious, which countries so far have been the most receptive to this form of treatment? Well, China... Is big time. China is big time. Japan is very open-minded. India has got some leaders over there in hyperbarics that are really pushing it. Um, Italy has a bunch of chambers, and their mentality is pretty incredible. Uh, Russia, though, is uh, Russia is really way ahead of everybody. In many well, things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And, of course, uh, you know, countries where they have socialized or nationalized medicine, uh, they have a real need to find things that work, that are efficient, that aren't horribly costly. And there doesn't seem to be the fear of loss of income for certain uh, medical groups or, or medical treatments 
they just go along with what works best and what's cheapest because they're paying for everybody's health care. I would think Germany would be really interested. Germany has chambers. Germany has chambers, too. Germany's pretty pretty open-minded with a lot of things. They do a lot of ozonation over there as well. Uh, they have developed a machine over there, an ozonating machine that takes the blood out, ozonates it, and, um, and puts it back in the body. And it uh, turns the blood into a form of oxidative medication. Sounds scary. That part sounds scary. <laughs> well, it's it's like everything else. It's got to be done properly, you know. You've had a ministry, haven't you? Yeah, for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about it? Well, yeah. The, most of our work has been uh, has been in foreign countries. Uh, we went to uh, Africa to Lelangui at the uh, the invitation of uh, the president. I think his name was Dr. Benda. He was a, a physician himself. We went over there and helped establish a program for the treatment of AIDS in a hospital called Hospital Cozumel. That was a long time ago. And we went to Romania in Bucharest and set up a program for the treatment of AIDS babies, which was very interesting to me. And we did a lot of work in Mexico and a lot of work in the United States with the homeless people and trying to help, especially lower-income people, develop ways of uh, eating better, um, understanding that some of what they were eating is poison and that they're responsible for their precious body, which is the most incredible gift, and that they could increase their health and uh, how they feel and so those kinds of things we've done over the years. Is your ministry still going? Is this something that's still active? You know, it it is, but not to such a great extent. And, and one of the reasons why is that uh, a couple of us who are very, very active uh, have already gone to uh, another world. And a lot of my uh, energy and support that uh, I had to help me uh, is no longer available. And that's sad, and I'm too busy to do a whole lot about it. Do you travel much now? Well, I have, you know, a lot. And I'm trying to wind down and change things a bit. It's pretty important to do that. I know that you were with Whitaker Wellness, formerly. Yeah, we we built there uh, one of the largest hyperbaric centers in the United States. We had the capacity there to treat, uh, we could treat comfortably probably 80 to 90 people a day if we needed to. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And you're in beautiful Newport? Yeah. Well, Newport Beach, and now I'm in uh, next door to Newport, which is Irvine, but it's... uh, it's Also very pretty. Yeah, it's all the same area. What do you think about the radiation leaks that have come into America that have been downplayed but are still here? Well, they they will dissipate um, pretty fast most of the time. But you have to know where they are. You know, are they are they in food? Are they uh, are they in something that will share the radiation process and uh, expand it? Um, I I don't panic over it, uh, but I think that we should be checking all the food. I don't think we should allow things in from from uh, that area unless they're tested carefully. And it doesn't take much to test them. It's not a real costly thing. It's time-consuming, and, and it costs money, but it's not horrific. Um, but, but it scares me a little bit, but not overwhelmingly. 
I had to ask you about that because I was wondering how the hyperbaric work would dovetail into getting radiation out of the body. Or oh, it help. helps dr- dramatically, dramatically. It's, uh, as I said, it's, it's so dramatic that it is approved for reimbursement by insurance. And there aren't many things in hyperbarics that are improved for reimbursement of insurance. Almost everything we do is not. In terms of radiation, like for treatment of cancer, why is it used? I don't understand it. Well, because it kills cells and it stops them from uh, replicating appropriately. Um, Therefore, (laughs) you can kill cancer cells with radiation, but you can also damage soft tissue and uh, blood vessels and healthy cells. And so that's what you have to try to overcome. In the old forms of radiation, it was much more severe. Now there are, for example, Loma Linda University Medical Center has been working for uh, many years with a new program. I think it's called the Photon, Photon Program that just can pinpoint the use of radiation on a certain area, so it doesn't hurt areas surrounding. That's what you want to avoid, you know, to blast a tumor, which, by the way, you know, a lot of people look at a tumor as the cancer. It isn't. It's a manifestation of the cancer. It's a, it's a result of the cancer. It's a symptom, if you will, of the cancer. But the causes for the cancer need to be addressed as well. That's the reason it's important to deal with nutrition, what you put in your body, not exacerbate your, your cells with a lot of stuff that they can't take. Uh, going on a live diet, for example, can be helpful. Proper detoxification can be helpful. Getting rid of chemicals from your body can be helpful. All of those things are very, very important. But radiation is a damaging thing. If it's done indiscriminately and uh, if people get overexposed, they can... They can die. They can die a not-so-pleasant death. I have a dear, dear friend of mine who has a tumor behind her nose, and she's being blasted daily, and she's so sick from the treatment, I can't even tell you. And then they're giving her a super dose of chemotherapy once every 8, 10 days, and she's so ill. I've never seen her like this, and she's losing her ability to speak. Well, my guess is that, uh, where is she physically? She's physically in Glendale, California, and she goes to USC for these treatments. Yeah. If, if they realized that there was another avenue to help what they were doing, and my guess is that they're probably using a more of a pinpoint type of, uh, of radiation than, 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 uh, than a massive uh, form of radiation. That's just my guess because they're pretty sophisticated in what they do. But, uh, you know, she could call, uh, she could call someone like uh, Oasis of Hope, which uh, we work with a lot, and they use hyperbarics. Oasis of Hope uh, Cancer Program uses hyperbarics for uh, this particular purpose. I'll have her do that. Yeah, oh, she definitely. could call. Uh, I, I she could call my number and call me and get it. I I can give her the number. I don't have it with me right now. I'd give it to you. Thank you. So the FDA has really approved this and has supported hyperbaric treatments. Is that because of the way you've stewarded and David Hughes and Richard Neubauer have stewarded this treatment? Actually, it's a result of the fact that it indisputably works with things 
that have been used over the years before we got so crazy with regulation. And also what we've done, we've done an awful lot to promote research and to help people do the things that they need to do to learn. Um, and I don't know how much it's affected the FDA doing anything, but it's certainly affected a lot of doctors who who support what the FDA is trying to do to expand the knowledge and uh, acceptance of hyperbarics. What's your greatest challenge today, if any? Well, there's always great challenges. Uh, My personal challenge is to reduce the cost of hyperbaric therapy to the point where it can be utilized by people who have no way of doing it right now. And I believe that if we created a uh, nonprofit institution and we could get some donations for the capital equipment so we didn't have any payments, I believe we could bring hyperbarics down to about $75 a treatment. I think that would be totally worth it, and I would support getting that started with you and for you and for the people who need it. I think that that would be absolutely incredible. It would change people's lives. And it would be the next step of changing the face of medicine um, in our uh, in our country because we're we're too money driven. I think we're spending two and a half trillion dollars now on on medical causes in the United States. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of suffering too, and it's a lot of experimentation. Absolutely, yeah. So that's my that would be my dream. Um, I'd love to do that. I've not found too many people who have had that uh, that desire to get involved in it, though. It's not it's not easy. You know, a lot of people would get involved in anything if there's a lot of money to be made. But if there's a lot of money to be made, then somebody's paying that money, and it's the patients. And in this case, you know, we're we're stealing people's lives away by not allowing them treatment. I've had a very pretty aggressive charity program for years that I've done, and temporarily I had to suspend it because of the economy. We haven't had the means to continue doing it, but we treated a lot of people over the last 12 years. We saved a lot of lives. We saved a lot of arms and legs and hands. It's quite amazing, and I thank God for that every day. I mean, I just the fact that we could do that was a gift. This is really needed. I'm so excited that you have a dream to make this available and affordable. And I think it is going to take some type of a nonprofit to do it. Well, if we can take the profit motive out of it and we can we can uh, get the equipment somehow, we can get raise money to get the equipment, we eliminate a big payment because for uh for say for example a UCLA UCLA probably has a couple million dollars invested in their chamber. That's huge money to pay every month on the loan or the lease or however they're doing it, along with interest and everything. And just to have a small clinic with four or five chambers in it would probably cost six or seven hundred thousand dollars, if not more. And the payments on that would be phenomenal. If you can eliminate those two things, you can bring the cost down substantially. I wonder if you see in the future the ability for these hyperbaric chambers to become more economy of scale type investments, or do you think it's going to stay so expensive? Well, I think it's going to be expensive because the equipment itself is highly sophisticated. Um, 
it would be cool for you to come down and visit. And I will come down. Um, it's really sophisticated equipment, and for safety it has to be. And I, and I totally understand that. I don't have a problem with it. But something I do have a problem with, if, if I'm to buy a chamber here, I can go get a chamber uh, and pay, say, $150,000 for it without, with, without hesitation, 150000 plus another 30000 for backup, you know, a, a room with compressors and air cleaners and air dryers and blowers and gas testers and oxygen supply and all that. I might have $200,000 a chamber invested. That's a lot of money. Right. I can go to China or Russia and I can buy a chamber built to the exact same specifications and in some cases better specifications for thirty to $35,000. Can you bring them here? Theoretically, no. It's very interesting. I've known some people who ship them to Canada and bring them over on a truck, but I don't think that's kosher. I, I tried years ago to, to do it, and uh, you know, was, I was told no, and I don't want to be involved in any kind of shenanigans, you know. I understand. <laughs> I understand. Well, it's a real pleasure and an honor to talk with you. I love what you're doing. I am going to come and see you in Newport Beach and see your facility and sit and talk with you about what's next. Well, that would be great. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Dr. Donald Jolly, the director of the Hyperbaric Oxygen Treatment, part of the Center for New Medicine, Hyperbaric Institute, He can be reached at 949-436-4960. You can go to www.hyperbaricanswers.com to read more about his work. And it is a pleasure and an honor to talk with you. And I look forward to meeting you soon. Thank you so much. My pleasure.